Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we will be this morning. Nehemiah 13. You know, a few weeks ago, we celebrated Memorial Day. Memorial Day is a day that we remember the fallen soldiers, but it's also a day that we remember POWs, MIAs um, that still have not returned home. And it, when you're looking around, it, it's common to see certain things written uh, in honor of, of that. And one of the things that's really common to see are phrases like, we will never forget. You know, we humans have a hard time of forgetting, don't we? We forget all kinds of stuff. We forget the lessons that we've learned, you know, <laughs> those things that we have to be taught over and over and over again because we continue to forget them. Um, we forget about the little tricks that make things easier. That, that, the way you have to jiggle that key or, or kind of pull it out just slightly to get the, get the lock to work and little tricks like that we forget all the time. We forget all kinds. Of, we forget our kids' names. Have y'all ever done that, parents? You go to, for those of you with multiple kids, like you go to name a kid and the wrong name comes out. Those of you with only one kid, I don't know if y'all do that. The, with us with multiple kids, it's a struggle. We forget all kinds of stuff. That's why we need a day like Memorial Day. A day to remind us so that we don't forget. It's also why God has gone through all the trouble to not only uh, reveal himself in his word, but to preserve his word through the ages. Because we need something. We need a constant reminder, a written record, so that we can know the things that matter most. We need something to jog our memories, something to reignite in us the flame of God's word. We need something to bring afresh to our eyes the divine perspective that we often miss. We're, we're prone to forget. And so we must not ever allow ourselves to forget both God's goodness and his requirements of us. This morning, I want us to consider our own forgetfulness. Now, perhaps I should have titled this sermon, How Quickly We Forget, because this is a problem we have. More than just forgetting information, more than just losing track of something in our minds, uh, we forget how to do. We don't just forget what. We don't just forget pieces of knowledge. We also forget with our muscles the actual performance of certain things. Nehemiah 12 is what looks to be the perfect ending of the book of Nehemiah. The wall has been built. Revival has happened. The people have dedicated it with great joy. It looks like a perfect spot to say, and they lived happily ever after the end. But God's word only has one happy ending, and Nehemiah 12 ain't it. See, there's a Nehemiah 13. And most of chapter 13 happens sometime after the year 433. So 445, Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem and begins the wall-building effort. He's governor in, in Jerusalem for about 12 years before he goes back to the king. Sometime later, he returns. And what happens in chapter 13 is what happens when Nehemiah comes back. And what he finds when he comes back is that the people have forgotten their promises. Back in chapter 10, they made several promises to God, a covenant with God that we are going to do certain things. The people would provide for the temple, for example, and for the Levites who served there. They would bring their tithes and, and all kinds of different supplies and offerings to God. 
and that by those means the services of the temple would continue. And then look at the summary at the end of that section. This is Nehemiah 10, verse 39, the end of the verse. We will not neglect the house of our God. But fast forward to chapter 13, and apparently they forgot. Chapter 13, verse 10. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his own field. They were supposed to give of the tithes so that, so that the people who are working in the temple, the Levites, the priests, the singers, all of these individuals would have food, would have some means of, of living. They didn't have a heritage. They didn't have land that God had given them because God said, "You, I am your heritage. You don't need the land. I will give you of me. The rest of what the people give to my temple, you're going to live off that because you're going to be dedicated to serving me. But here we find in chapter 13, they're not doing that. They're not bringing the portions. They're not bringing the tithes. And so these Levites have to go back to their own homes and work their own fields while also doing temple service too, being responsible for both. Things are falling apart. Not only were the portions not being given, it was so bad. Well, verses four and five. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So you have this large storage area in the temple, and it's full of all kinds of stuff that they're using. It's full of uh, the fragrance that they're using to make fragrant offerings to God throughout the temple day and night. It, it's used to handle some of the grain, some of the, the um, offerings that have been given to store it until it could be used. It was used for all sorts of different things, implements and, and, and different tools and things that they used in the daily service of the temple. So what does he do? He clears that out and makes it a hotel room for Tobiah. Tobiah. Don't we know Tobiah? Oh yeah. Chapter 2, verse 10. But when Sambal the Horite, Horonite, excuse me, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. As soon as Nehemiah gets to Jerusalem, before he even tours, later in chapter 2 is when he makes the tour of the wall by night without anybody knowing, and then presents the case to the people that, hey, we can rebuild this. Before he's even done that, they're already opposing him. Tobiah is already one of the ones who is opposing the work of rebuilding Jerusalem from the very beginning. Someone's actually here seeking after the good of the Jews, and he's already opposing it. And now when Nehemiah returns to Susa to serve in the king's court once again, the high priest just clears out a room and lets him live in the temple. Now, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, you'll see that God commanded that the Ammonites, as well as the Moabites, were not even allowed in the community of Israel. They couldn't even live in the towns of Israel, among the people of Israel, because of what Ammon and Moab had done. 
because of the sins that they had committed against their brothers, against the, the, the folks in Israel, because of what they had done in opposing them in the Exodus, God says in Deuteronomy 23, they're not even, 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 even if that was 10 generations ago. Now, I, don't, I haven't done the math, but that's a very low percentage of nationality, 10 generations. In other words, they're not allowed even in my community, not to mention in the temple of God. It's so bad that he's taking a storage room that they weren't using anyway because they weren't even bringing the stuff into the temple. He takes that storage room and brings one of the enemies of Israel, one of the enemies of God, into the temple to live in the place where God is supposed to be. This is bad, y'all. How quickly they forgot. The Israelites also made promises about the Sabbath. Verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 31. This is the people talking. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exactation of every debt. In other words, they would remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Hey, that sounds important. Maybe someone should write that down. They, they wouldn't even... They wouldn't buy on the Sabbath. They wouldn't work on the Sabbath. Not, not only that, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even, they would observe not only the Sabbath day, but the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they weren't supposed to collect crops to give the land its rest too. And then those that owed debt, their debt was to be wiped clean every seventh year. We'll do that, they say. We'll do that. We will live according to God's commands. But they forgot those promises too. Verses 15 and 16 in chapter 13. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrants also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. He can't even believe his eyes. Not only are they not abiding by the Sabbath, they're directly opposing everything they said they would be doing, everything that God had commanded. They're buying, they're working, they're doing hard work too. If you ever tried to tread grains, tread grapes in a wine press, that's not exactly easy going. That's tough work. Loading, loading loads on donkeys, that's, that's, not, that's not easy. I used to work at Lowe's. We had these uh, huge bags of gravel or of dirt or of black cow or of whatever it happened to be. We'd have to pick these bags up and load them into people's cars for them. I remember some people, y'all, if, if, if you're going to do landscaping work at your house, bring a truck. Bring a truck to Lowe's so they can load it up, you know, and, and it can handle the weight. We had like Buick sedans with the trunks full, like 600 pounds of dirt and stuff, those things, those things were like sparking off the, off the pavement as they drove away. I mean, they were, they were low, low riding. <laughs> it was ridiculous. Y'all take a truck when you go to do your landscape and stuff, all right? Or call Jim, he'll do it for you, right? <laughs> Jim's like, no, I've got enough. I don't, I don't need any more. Y'all, they're doing this on the Sabbath, the day of rest. I don't know if you know this, but we, we humans, we need rest. 
But money here is taking precedence. See, they've forgotten their oath. They forgot the promises. Rather than remembering the Sabbath and maintaining the sanctity of that day, they were working to earn a buck. What was commanded, by the way, to be a unique feature of Israelite life. No other ancient culture had a Sabbath day. None. This was unique to Israel, and they're just throwing it out as if it doesn't matter. And, and speaking of disregarding cultural uniqueness, they were also slowly losing their cultural heritage, their identity. And it was happening through mixed marriages, verses 23 and 24. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, do you remember who the enemies of the wall building were? You had Sanballat, and you had Geshem, and you had Tobiah. And then it mentioned some groups, some, some peoples, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Ashdodites. It's like, it's like this people has completely turned back their backs on God and is now looking to the enemies of God and not only just looking to them, to belong to them, but intermarrying with them, losing their identity in the process. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah. Now, Ashdod, y'all know what people group that was, right? That was the Philistines. Those people that had come from ancient Greece found a home on the, on the western shores of Israel. Just as the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and heading into the promised land, the Philistines have just now set up their camps along the coast. And they would be a perpetual thorn in Israel's side. It's so bad that the kids didn't even know how to speak Hebrew. Now, the languages were probably somewhat similar but not the same. And here's something, this is a side note, okay? The language you speak affects not only what you say, but what you think. We think in terms of language. That's why, um, that's why uh, when you're younger, you have vocabulary in school, because they want you to have a good handle on the language so that you can really think through things later on. If you don't have a good vocabulary, you're very limited in what your mind's able to process because we think in terms of language. So take, for example, in English, we put the subject before the verb in our sentences. Other languages don't do that. In Hebrew, for example, the verb is almost always first. If the subject comes first, it's really, really important. Like we're stressing something here. But, if, but in normally, it's verb, then subject. In Latin, the verb is like the very last word of the sentence. You build everything else, and then you show the action that's taking place. It's kind of funny how different languages arrange this, and, and, it, and it reflects a worldview, right? So, so in English, putting the subject first, we're stressing the individual involved a little bit more than the action that they're doing. In Hebrew, the action is most important. And then that individual is just kind of along for the ride almost. Is, is, they're doing the action, but it, the, the stress is on what's being done, not who's doing it. It shapes the way you think. The way we use language shapes the way we think. And so the fact that they don't have Hebrew means that they are being shaped to think in ways that foreign cultures think, which means that they're going to look at God through a foreign lens, not through the lens of how he's revealed himself in Scripture because they can't read the Scripture. Because they don't understand what's going on. This is, this is why it's so crucial. It's so important that we maintain our heritage. 
This is something that we, we have to do, not just in the terms of, uh, not just in the terms of the grand scheme of things, the, the big principles over life. We've got to maintain the language. Because if you change the language, you change the way people think. That's why in culture wars, the first thing that some people try to do is change what words mean. Because if they can determine the meaning of the word, they can determine the conversation about the word. So it's crucial for us to see the problem here. The problem here is that the Israelites are giving up their cultural identity, which is not only rubbing elbows with God, it's completely founding God. God has designed this culture. And giving up that identity is a rejection of God himself. In fact, it was so bad, uh, verse 28, and one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the priest, the high priest, excuse me, was the son-in-law of Samballat the Horonite. Yeah, that Samballat. You know, the one that's opposing Israel, the one that's spreading the false rumors. You know, it sure be a shame if the king heard that you were trying to rebel against him, that Samballat. That's the one. And he's related to the high priest by intermarriage, by mixed marriages. All these problems really show us something about human nature. I said, I said it wasn't just about forgetting information. See, our forgetfulness really has a, a deeper root. We have a, within us a sinful nature, and our sinfulness will not quit. That's why we keep forgetting. It's not that we keep forgetting because it just keeps slipping our mind. It's that we keep forgetting because we have a sinful bent that is trying to push us away from God. No matter how great our leaders might be and no matter how many efforts of reformation we may make, we still carry that sinful nature with us and it will stop at nothing to drag us down. I, I, I really think the people are genuine when they make those promises in chapter 10. I really think the revival that's happening is a genuine revival in the sense that the people really do want to honor God. But by the time we get to chapter 13, they've just stopped trying. You know, it's really hard to fight your own desires and to keep fighting them and to keep fighting them. It's even harder when all of your associations are with the enemies of God. Being a chosen nation and remaining unique in the midst of a bunch of nations that are against God, that, that was a task too hard for Israel. By the way, it's too hard for us to. Our sinfulness will not quit. It's always seeking a foothold, and it will stop at nothing until it reestablishes dominion over your life, over my life. Our sinfulness will not quit, so our holiness must not quit either. Nehemiah's reaction uh, to each of the situations is telling. After discovering what Eliashib had done in clearing out space for Tobiah, uh, look at what he does. This is in verse 8. And I was very angry. Now remember, we talked about folks earlier being very angry. Tobiah and Sam Ballard are very angry that someone's going to pursue the good of Israel. They're very angry that their efforts at stopping the wall building are not working. They're very angry to see that the people are continuing to work. Even after they get them to stop with threats of violence and Nehemiah brings them back into working and now they're working with swords at their sides and now they're working with, with people guarding them as they go and, and some are carrying blocks in one hand and swords in the other to be ready to fight on a moment's notice. They get very angry at this. Now we see the turn. Now Nehemiah is the one very angry. But watch what his anger does. 
What his anger does isn't attack the people of God. Isn't try to thwart the plan of God. It's to enact the plan of God. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. The implication is not only the one he was in, but all the ones around it too. Just in case something got defiled there as well. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Kind of reminds you of Jesus cleaning out the temple, doesn't it? It should. Nehemiah and Jesus both saw that the temple was being defiled and so they both directly confronted the problem and resolved it. You know, sometimes holiness requires direct confrontation of evil and appropriate response to sin. Our sinfulness doesn't quit, so our holiness must not either. And what about the portions that people had stopped giving? Verse 11, so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shemaliah the priest and Zadok the scribe and Pediah the, the Levites and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakor, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, oh my God, concerning this. And do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In this case, he, he brings a court case. Chapter, uh, verse 11, when it says that he confronted the officials, that's the, that's a legal term. He's bringing a legal case against them. And he says, he says, hey, this, this shouldn't be happening. So then what does he do? He puts everybody back in their spots. He puts good, trustworthy men in charge of making sure the temple is not forsaken. That restoration wasn't like the response to Tobiah's apartment. He's not throwing stuff around. No, here he's putting people in the right places because the problem is twofold. It's a, it's a, the public has stopped supporting the temple and those who work in the temple have stopped being responsible. There, there was no public confidence, so there was no public support. So Nehemiah puts the right people in the right places to do the job. You know, sometimes holiness is just simply about doing what's right. It's not about confronting per se. It's about just making it right. Something's not right, fix it. Sometimes that's all holiness requires. Holiness can't quit because our sinfulness won't. Nehemiah also had to address the Sabbath problem. This one, he takes a two-pronged attack on. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that he confronted the nobles of Judah and he said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Notice he doesn't get all the people of Judah, just the nobles. Hey, stop it. You're doing wrong, quit. There's a confrontation there, right? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Hey, didn't our fathers make the same mistake? And didn't God pour out his wrath because of it? We've been down this road. This does not lead in a good place. He calls them out. He reminds them that this is what caused the exile in the first place. This is what's caused all the difficulties. You know why the wall was broken down? Because they forsook God's commands. Now here we are doing the same thing and we just rebuilt it. Don't forget. Remember what's happened in the past. Learn from the mistakes of our fathers. And then 
He takes the second prong. He fixes it. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So he closes the doors, orders them shut, puts up a sign on the front that says no loitering and has his servants making sure that gate doesn't get open until Sabbath is over. Well, then the merchants and sellers of all kinds, the wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. They're thinking, all right, we'll just wait till it opens. Verse 21, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay my hands on you. That's, that's holy speak right there. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Sometimes holiness is a thinly veiled threat, huh? Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. I wonder where he got that language from. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. God, don't forget what I'm doing. Isn't that interesting? They keep forgetting. They keep forgetting. They keep forgetting. Nehemiah's calling God. God, don't forget. Don't forget. Just like the Levites stood for God when Moses came down and there's the golden calf, and he, he says, uh, who, who is on the Lord's side? And all the Levites come to him, willing to do what God has commanded of them. So these Levites were to stand for God at the gate to keep the Sabbath day holy. What about the intermarriages? Nehemiah dealt with those too. This approach though, is a little less than conventional, let's put it that way. Verse 25, and I confronted them, again, this is the third time in this chapter that he has brought legal cases against the offenders, okay? I confronted them, these would be the people who had married their sons and daughters to other cultures, and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. All right, so who wants to confess their sin? <laughs> Yeah, right? Once again, Nehemiah is direct. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take your daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin guy with the reputation as the wisest king ever to live. And foreign women took his heart away. You see, it's not just about the information. It's about living it. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Surely not. He doesn't just challenges, challenge them. He punishes them. Now, this is probably not the most effective means in many cases, Okay. Don't go pulling out people's hair because they're doing bad things. But sometimes holiness has to have bite. Sometimes there must be a punishment. You know, it's, it's, the, reason, it's the reason you spank a child. It's not because you don't love him. It's because he's doing stuff that will hurt him. Now, does that mean you spank every time he does something wrong? No. But sometimes holiness requires punishment. And sometimes punishment has to to teach through a very unenjoyable means. Y'all, this, this problem wasn't just among a few people here and there. It was, 
It went all the way up to the house of the high priest. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballat, the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Don't forget them either. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign and established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Sometimes holiness has to take decisive action. Sometimes it's working slowly, deliberately. Sometimes it's bold and active to persuade. Sometimes it's diplomatic. But always, always, holiness must be persistent. Our sinfulness will not quit. So our holiness must not either. Now, one other thing I need to tie up, a loose end. I keep saying our holiness, but it's not really ours. It doesn't belong to us. It doesn't come from us. This holiness, well, we're not really capable of it. We're too marred. That sinful nature just just mars us too much. Holiness is a command of God, but it's also his provision. Look in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me. There's the command. For I, the Lord, am holy. There's the reason behind the command. And have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. That is the provision for the command. This holiness is God's character. So if we are going to have holiness, if we're going to be able to say our holiness, we have to recognize it's not coming from us, it's coming from God working through us because he is the source of holiness. Holiness is God's work in us. And let's be honest, it takes a work of God to actually make us holy, to produce the character, to overcome our sinfulness that just never gives up. We need a holiness that's straight from God. He offers that. He expects that. He commands that. Pray with me. Father, may we never forget the truth that it is you and only you who can make us holy. This morning, some of us, some of us may not, may not know you. Some of us may never have surrendered our hearts to Christ. We may have, for whatever reason, maybe we've never encountered the truth. Maybe your Holy Spirit has just spoken in such a way as never before. Father, I pray that they would recognize that they cannot be holy apart from you, that their sin takes them away from you, and that only you, only you can save them. Only you can redeem them from their sin. Father, I pray this morning that they would receive you as their Savior, and more importantly than that, as their Lord. Father, though, for those who have, it's a constant struggle. Our sinful nature does not give up for anything. So, God, we pray that you would provide for us God, give us your holiness. Through your Holy Spirit, you discipline us, you shape us, you make us into your image. Father, our lives, we live for you. So you take control and you do your will in this time. Whatever you're leading us to do, may we follow you and not forget the promises, the blessings, the commands that you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.